If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13 will be this morning in verses 21 through 35. We will focus our attention on verses 34 and 35 in particular, but we want to get those verses in context. So we'll read together John 13, verses 21 through 35. Please follow along as I read. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father, please give a sense to each one of us that we appear now before your word, that we rely upon your word for life, for food. It is to us the most precious thing in the world. And so we pray in these moments, help us to come before this text with humility, with a certain openness of spirit to hear from you, to receive from you, to have our lives conformed and shaped by the Word of God. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. You would be pleased in our response to the Word of God preached this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are certain verses in the Bible, certain passages, certain texts that we could refer to as epitome texts. Epitome texts. Uh, Those would be Verses of Scripture that in very short compass with very concise and muscular language summarize deeply profound and eminently important truths in the Word of God. Epitome texts, a text that epitomize particular truths in the Bible in very short compass that are of great importance to the theology of the church and the life of the Christian. 
we have one of those texts in our passage today. It's probably true that few things in the Bible rise to the level of importance uh, as the new commandment we're given in verses 34 and 35. I want to read those verses again for you. Here in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says, verse 34, to His disciples gathered with Him, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything in the Bible is important. Everything in the Bible is the Word of the living God, breathed out by God, as as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. But that is not to say that every single verse in the Bible is as important or as relevant for the Christian life. It's all God's Word, but there are certain passages that are of sort of, sort of crowning importance, of, of, of such import to the life of the Christian that we should, in a special way, give added attention. I, I think that's one of these verses this morning. Few things rise to the level of importance as Jesus' new command in verses 34 and 35. So here's the outline I'd like us to follow this morning in opening up this passage and better understanding what it is that Jesus is calling us to as His disciples. Uh, three headings. We'll consider this morning the priority of love, and that's where we'll indeed spend most of our time. The priority of love. Uh, secondly, the pattern of love. And then thirdly, the proof of love, the priority, the pattern, the proof of love. And again, most of our time will be in that first heading. So consider with me first the priority of love. Now, now most scholars who study the Gospel of John believe that the upper room discourse proper really begins in verse 31 or maybe 33. Uh, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. Just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That's, that's the introductory idea. What Jesus is doing in the Upper Room Discourse is preparing His little band of disciples, the beginnings of the church, uh, for His departure. He's going to leave them, and now He has, over the next four to five chapters, instructions to give them. And this is to be understood as the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse. The foot washing is in the past. Judas has left the room. He's there alone now with this new messianic community, this new church, this ecclesia, this assembly of those who have been given the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. And the very first instructions he gives to this, this new community, this new church, this, this new group of disciples who will be in many ways the charter members of the church of Jesus Christ, the universal church of which we are a part and of which this church is just one local expression. The first instructions He gives to them are these words, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. D.A. Carson, in commenting on this text, says this, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. 
I want to talk now about the priority of love in the Christian life and in the life of the church. The priority that this commandment, the new commandment, Jesus gives in verses 34 and 35 should have in our Christian lives and in our life together as a local church. So perhaps the first question we should ask is this, in what sense is this a new commandment? You ever wondered that? Jesus, is a new command I give to you, that you love one another. In what sense should we think of this command as, as being new? Well, this obviously isn't the first time these Orthodox Jewish men have heard that they're to love one another. This is taught in a number of places throughout the Bible. Le- Leviticus 19, verse 18, uh, the Jews were told, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So the idea of, of loving others is not new revelation to these men. Jesus says in another place, I think in Matthew 22, uh, he tells his disciples that all the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is summarized in the two great commandments, that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not new in terms of the content of the commandment itself, that they were to love one another. So in what sense is this a new command? Well, I think it's new in in two ways in particular. The first is quite apparent, and that is that there's a new standard that is given for how we ought to love one another. A new standard is given. So so the the measure by which we're to love one another is, is, is not only how we would want to be loved ourselves, love your neighbor as yourself. There's an elevation of the standard now. See, Jesus gives a model. As I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. There's a new pattern. There's a new model. And indeed, this represents an elevation of the standard in terms of how we're to love one another, just, just, not just like the way we want to be loved by our fellow humans, uh, but rather the way we have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that standard now is the standard for us and how we love one another. But the more significant way, I think, in which this commandment can be said to be new is that it represents to these first disciples, the beginning members of of Jesus' church, his ecclesia, his called out ones, his assembly, a new command in terms of priority. It's a new command in terms of priority. Jesus is in essence saying, for you, my newly formed church, this is a matter of first importance. This is a matter of first priority. You must love one another. This is his new community, and he is laying out for them a new program for how they ought to live and conduct themselves as his disciples in the world. And he gives them this command with peculiar freshness and particular priority. He is, in effect, saying, This will be the defining trait of this new community. As the church gets its start through you men, this small band of disciples, as the church begins, this command will become one of the defining traits of how you live together and conduct yourselves as a community of my followers. You will love one another as I have loved you. The command is given a new place of prominence in the lives of those who follow God. As Jesus anticipates His departure out of the world back to the Father, and as He anticipates leaving them behind to be His ambassadors in the world, this emerges as the matter of first importance that they love one another. Priority of love. We see here, as we see in a multitude of texts in the New Testament, 
uh, that love for one another should be one of the defining traits, not only of the Christian, but of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The priority that Jesus gives here to the need for Christians to love one another is consistent with a pattern we see all throughout the New Testament. I think it's true, I think it's true, that other than the gospel message itself, there is nothing that is emphasized more in the New Testament than the need for Christians to love one another. Now you test that statement in your private reading of God's Word. But I think it's true, other than the gospel itself, but what God has done in Christ to make a way of salvation for sinners through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, there is nothing that rises to the level of importance and priority to the New Testament writers than that Christians actually love one another and in so doing, imitate the Lord Jesus. As far as I know, there's only one New Testament author that doesn't make a significant contribution to the subject of love. I think that's Jude, and he still brings it up. But, but what we see in text after text, passage after passage, is this priority that we love one another. The gospel accounts are taken up with this commandment. The writings of the Apostle Paul, the writings of the Apostle John, the writings of the Apostle Peter, it's all over the New Testament. This priority, this new command, that God's people be thoughtfully and affectionately engaged in loving each other. And what is love? Well, love is a commitment of the will. It's an affection of the heart, and it's a sacrifice of the life. That conduct, that affection, that commitment is to characterize our lives toward one another. So I said this is all over the face of the New Testament. I just want to show you a couple of places where this is especially pronounced. Um, this text may have occurred to you already, but let me ask that you turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You keep a finger in John 13, but turn over to Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. This is a passage that's often read out at weddings. That's in every way appropriate, but that is not Paul's immediate concern in writing 1 Corinthians 13. It's not principally about marital love. It's about the love that ought to exist between Christians in the church. And this is what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these 
is love. This passage can be applied to churches, it can be applied to pastors, it can be applied to every individual Christian. If a church doesn't have love, it has nothing. Has nothing. If you, brother or sister, do not have love for your fellow Christians, you have nothing. What's more than that, this passage says, you are nothing if you do not have love for other believers. I don't care if you have a PhD. I don't care if you read the Puritans. I don't care if you give away all your money to the poor. I don't care what long list of good works you might have to your record. I don't care if you are a martyr for the faith. Isn't that what Paul says? It doesn't matter if I give my body to be burned. If I don't have love, I'm just like a noisy gong, like white noise. I'm just nothing if I don't have love in my heart from my fellow Christians. Love is the greatest of all Christian virtues. In this passage, it's said to be greater than faith itself, greater even than Christian hope. Love is the crowning virtue of the Christian life. Uh, Another passage where the uh, love that Christians are to have for one another is especially um, emphasized is in the book of Ephesians. I won't have you turn there. In Ephesians chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul uh, uh, uses the imagery of the church as a building. Church is a structure. It's like a holy temple, and it's being built. And there in verse 20, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So, so Paul is speaking of the church as a building, and the foundation, if you will, of that building is the apostles' doctrine. So the church is built on the doctrine of the apostles and the finished work of Christ, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. Then in chapter 4, the end of that chapter, middle of that chapter, Paul returns to the building imagery, and he mixes his metaphors. He talks about the building, and he talks about a body, both being, being built, both images sort of work for what he wants to get across. And, and there, Paul goes into greater depth about what he's talking about in terms of the church being built up. Remember, they're, they're built on the foundation of the apostles' doctrine. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, we read, though, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each member is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So built on the foundation of the apostles' doctrine, built up in love. So I think the image is is, is like this. The truth Sound doctrine, the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself, the cornerstone, that's the foundation the church is built upon. But, but love in the church is like the mortar that holds the bricks together as the structure is built up. Love is what keeps the different building materials fastened and connected to one another. It's like the adhesive that keeps the building materials together as the church grows up in love. The church is like a body, and and doctrine is like the DNA, it's like the identity, it's the genetic code of who we are. But see, love is like the nutrients we need in order to grow. 
The body doesn't grow without love. The body doesn't even hold together if we don't have love. You know, it's true, churches rarely, almost never, stay together because of doctrine. They never stay together because of doctrine. Churches get started because of doctrine, a like-mindedness about the truth. They don't stay together because of doctrine. Churches stay together because of love. See a church that endures for generations? It's not just the product of, I mean, you need to have that foundation. Can't, Can't be without it. But the church will not persevere through the generations unless there is a thoughtful, affectionate commitment between the members to love one another. And we've made every effort as a church to establish this particular local church on firm doctrinal footing. We've ratified our confessional statements, our charter documents, and we have insisted that every member who would join this church would affirm those documents, even sign their name to our church covenant. We offer classes. We teach church history. We give away books. Uh, We are uh, earnestly interested in the study of theology and doctrine. And part of the reason we've emphasized doctrine to such a degree is because we want this church for generations to be committed to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let no man say that this church isn't holding fast to the pattern of sound words, the pattern of sound teaching. And yet, in my estimation, the greatest challenge to the longevity of this church is not going to come in the form of doctrinal instability. It will be whether or not we remain committed to love one another. It will be whether or not we remain faithful to the new commandment, to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now, you say that doesn't sound very reformed of you. Maybe not. I hope it sounds very biblical. Amen. The church in Ephesus had a great start. Great start. It's wonderful to read the ways in which that church abounded in love, was marked by love, was built up in love. But you have in Revelation 2, and we highlighted this when we went through the book of Ephesians a couple years ago as a church. In Revelation 2, the Lord Jesus Himself writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. This would be about two generations on from their start. Again, wonderful start, incredible start. About two generations on, the Lord Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And, and He doesn't, he, he threatens them basically with removing the candlestick from their midst, with de-churching the church at Ephesus. And that threat is not given to the church at Ephesus because they've become wishy-washy on their doctrine. He actually commends them for their doctrinal precision. But the reason the Lord Jesus is going to de-church the church at Ephesus if they don't repent and return to the works they did at first is because they have abandoned their first love, or more accurately, the love that they had at first. Jesus says, you're discerning with respect to doctrine. Good for you, but you're not loving each other. If you're not loving each other, you're not a church of mine. If you're not following the new commandment laid out for the Lord Jesus' first disciples and, and, and giving attention to what should be the defining trait of the new community of God's people, you're no church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says in Revelation 2. Now, we've had 
I think, a good start as a church. I don't say that with any sort of pride or something like that or presuming on the blessing of God. God has been remarkably kind to this local church. I'll say it was a really sweet thing. A few weeks ago, we had a um, testimony and Thanksgiving service, and it was sort of a theme of the evening. As many members came up and shared testimony, they commented on the love that was present within the life of this particular local church. It was the sweetest thing to sit and to listen to different ones share testimony and to thank God for the love that's present in the church. But friends, that has to be stewarded. That has to be nurtured. The Ephesians had that, but they drifted. They drifted. Two generations on, the Lord Jesus has to threaten them as a church that no longer possesses the the definitive traits of what it is to be a church. Our love that we have for one another is precious, but it must be stewarded and guarded like a crown jewel of Christian fellowship. We must be proactive in maintaining and nurturing the love that we have for one another. Commenting on Jesus' command in John 13, 34, and 35, Carson again writes, orthodoxy without principial obedience to this characteristic command of the new covenant is merely so much humbug. Just, to use Paul's language, clanging cymbal. Just a loud noise. So much humbug. Now, now, I'm not trying to set up some sort of dichotomy between truth and love. Like, like you have truth people and you have love people and you need 50% of each one or something like that. No, we want lots of truth and lots of love. Best case scenario, we speak the truth in love, built on the apostles' doctrine, built up in love. We need lots of truth, lots of love, but we should be mindful, brothers and sisters, of of where we might be prone to fail in this area. It would be legitimate, be legitimate for someone to look at our church and say, you know, Manual Church is a pretty heady group, pretty bookish. They have Sunday evening classes on the Puritans, they're selling lots of books, talk a lot about theology. You go to their What We Believe page and they're talking about 16th and 17th century confessions. It's a heady group. Well, listen, I'm not embarrassed in the least if one of our calling cards as a church is that we are robustly committed to sound doctrine. We will not be embarrassed by that at all, but we should be ashamed of ourselves If our commitment to the truth of God's Word and of sound doctrine and of the faith once for all delivered to the saints doesn't have as a companion, is not accompanied with affectionate love between the members of the body, we should be ashamed of ourselves. And we will will not have any confidence before Christ on the last day to say, well, hey, we we had some really great confessional statements and we taught some really good classes and we sold some really good books. Those things are important. Those things are wonderful. But if they are not accompanied with this earnest kind of love the Lord Jesus calls us to, it's nothing. It's all for naught. Everything we've built here is pointless. It's not a sweet-swelling aroma in the nostrils of Christ. Uh, Rather, we will fail Him. We will disappoint Him. Charles Spurgeon said, acts of love must always keep pace with the preaching of faith. Acts of love must always keep pace, like they're running alongside each other, must keep pace with the preaching of faith. Jesus says to His disciples, a new commandment, a new priority I give to you, that you love 
one another. Brothers and sisters, of all that is important, of all the priorities of the church, Jesus says, I want my followers, my disciples, at that Last Supper and within these four walls, I want you to observe this commandment to love one another. This is too important. This cannot fail. We must be thoughtfully and affectionately committed to love one another. Well, may Christian love forever shine as one of the preeminent qualities of our lives and of our church to the glory and honor of Christ. That's the priority of love, this new command, this new priority that Christ gives to His disciples. Now consider with me secondly and more briefly uh, the pattern of love. The priority of love, secondly, the pattern of love. How are we to love one another? Verse 34 says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is one of the new facets of the new commandment. This is one of the things that makes it a new commandment. There's a new pattern. There's a new standard that's given. And that pattern is, of course, the Lord Himself. The Word who was in the beginning with God and indeed was God. The Word who became flesh for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That's the pattern for us. The Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That is our example, our model, our pattern. Jesus who, when facing the fateful hour of His death, loved His own who were in the world and loved them to the end. Uh, the Christ who, uh, when, when He contemplated that all authority had been given into His hand and, and knew that He had come from God and was going back to God, took off His outer garment, donned a towel, got on His knees and washed the feet of the disciples. The Savior who modeled the greatest standard of love, and that is that a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no higher standard that can be set for us as followers of Christ. And we are told by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 that the same mind that drove Jesus to the cross is to be in us as well. Uh, that same mind that moved Jesus to take the form of a servant, that made Him obedient even to the point of death, we're to clothe ourselves with that same mind toward one another, uh, esteeming others more highly uh, than ourselves, taking an eager interest in one another, outdoing one another in showing honor, as Paul says in Romans 12.9. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you also are to love one another. So, so I just ask, have you entered in on this standard of love in your relationships among the body? Have you experienced, have you entered in on this standard that the Lord has set for us? I had to go to Christ this week with shame, feeling as though I have never loved a person this way. And yet this is the, the standard He gives to us, and He expects, brothers and sisters, we can enter in on this standard. We can follow His example in this. He doesn't leave it, you know, in the abstract. He doesn't make it theoretical for us. He gives us a very practical example. He says, I've washed your feet. You wash one another's feet. We can do that for one another. He says, I'm laying down my life for you, giving my life for you. We can do that for one another. 
Uh, esteem others' needs, others' well-being, the good of others more highly than our own. We can count others more uh, significant than ourselves. We can give ourselves to one another following the examples of Christ. And he expects we can follow this example, of course, not perfectly, but truly following the Master, imitating the manner in which he loved us. And so I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you contemplate the, the standard the Lord Jesus has set for us, the pattern for love he has set for us, uh, start in your family. Ask yourself this question, what would it look like to love my husband, to love my wife as Christ has loved me? What would it look like to love my spouse the way Christ has loved me? And maybe write down three, four, five, six practical ways in which you can love your spouse the way Christ has loved you. Uh, how can I love my children the way Christ has loved me? Provide them with a model as Christ provides a model for us. Uh, you believing children, kids here today, I, I know not all of you are following Christ. I pray that all of you will. But those of you who think you might be believers, followers of the Lord Jesus, ask yourself, what would it look like to love my brother or sister in the family, my mom and dad, as Christ has loved me. And then as Spurgeon says, throw that stone of love into the pool of your life and let the ripples go wider and wider. Expand out into the life of the church. What would it look like to love the people sitting in front of me, behind me, beside me? What would it look like to love them as Christ has loved me? Christ has given us a pattern to follow. He is the standard for us in how we ought to love one another. Well, now consider with me, thirdly and finally, the proof of love. The proof of love. We've seen the priority of love, the pattern of love, which is, of course, the example of the Lord Jesus and how He has loved us. Thirdly and finally, consider with me the proof of love. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the question with this heading is, what does the love we have for one another prove? The proof of love. What does the love we have for one another in the church, what does that prove? Very simply, that we are indeed Christ's disciples. Notice it doesn't say that it proves the Christian faith true. It doesn't say that. So I don't think we should read John 13, 34 through 35 to mean that the way we love one another is like an apologetic proof for the veracity of the Christian faith. That's not what the text says. Now, I do think, of course, the love that we have for one another is a witness to a watching world, but that's not what's at issue in this passage. What does the text plainly say? Verse 35, by this all people will know what? That you are my disciples that you're followers of this man, Jesus Christ. They will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, what does the love we have for one another prove? That we are indeed true disciples, true followers of Jesus. And the very simple logic is, if you look like the Master, you must be His follower. Uh, if you look like the teacher, you must be His disciple. I was saying to someone this week, uh, back in, in my seminary days, uh, there were a few especially prominent churches in the Wake Forest, Raleigh-Durham area 
uh, near Southeastern Seminary. And as you would sit in classes, as I would sit there and listen to different ones make comments and all of that, uh, usually all I would have to do is hear three or four comments from a student before uh, I could tell which church they went to. Uh, because you, know, you sit under someone's preaching or someone's discipleship, you start talking in a certain way that might imitate that particular preacher's style of speaking or discipleship and all of that. You could nine times out of ten discern just from their comments uh, where it was that they went to church and where it was they were discipled. Well, the idea is here in our text that people should look at our lives, see the way we live, hear the way we talk, and conclude, ah, this one must be in Christ's school. They must be sitting at the feet of, of Jesus. They've been reading the Gospels a lot. They've been reading the epistles of the New Testament. They've been reading the Scriptures and sitting before the example of Jesus. No wonder they live the way that they live and talk the way that they talk. In other words, you can reverse engineer the thing. You meet someone who has no ability to forgive people, well, you can safely assume that person has never experienced the forgiveness of God. You come across someone who has no ability or desire to love other people, well, I can assure you whatever that person may be, he's not a Christian. Because John 13, 34, and 35 tells us, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if you don't have love for one another, then what grounds exist for concluding that you are Christ's disciples? Again, it's not alchemy. It's very simple logic Jesus is employing here. If you look like the Master, act like the Master, well, you must be following Him. You must be His disciples. So simple is this logic, I think the smallest child can understand it. Uh, children, how do you know that a dog is a dog? If it barks, right? How do you know a cat is a cat? It meows. How do you know it's the Clemson Tigers? They're winning football games. It's just part of the nature of the thing. How do you know if a person is a Christian? If he loves other people. How do you know someone is a Christian? Well, it's not just what they say. It's not just whether or not they can teach a class. Do they love other people? Uh, children and young people, teenagers, perhaps you're wondering, am I a Christian? Have, have I become a follower? of the Lord Jesus? If I put my faith and trust in Jesus, am I really one of His disciples? Well, I can tell you, if you have truly followed Jesus, come to faith in Jesus Christ, experienced the new birth, then one of the things you'll begin to notice in yourself is that you have love for God's people. You begin to detect that in your heart. I love the people of God. You parents who are seeking to discern evidences of conversion, evidences of the grace of God in your children, look for this. Look for love for other Christians. The concept of love as a proof of true discipleship is opened up in greater detail in John's epistle. The Apostle John, his epistle, 1 John, you don't have to turn there. These are familiar words to many of us, but listen as I read verses 7 through 11. Of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The idea is as a child takes on the genetic traits of its parents, so we as those who have been born of the Spirit of God take on the traits of God our Father. And who is God? What is God? God is love. So how could those truly born of God be anything but loving people, imitating the the pattern of love God has set for us in His Son, Jesus Christ? But now we're straying sort of far from, from the text here, because Jesus does not say, by this, you will know that you are my disciples, as important as it might be to prove to ourselves that we are disciples of Christ. That's not where Jesus goes here. He's concerned with what the world will conclude. He's concerned with their witness to a watching world. He says, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We've seen this already in chapter 13, but this is, this is the issue for Jesus in the upper room discourse. He's concerned with how his disciples represent him to a watching world. They're ambassadors, they're messengers sent by Christ into the world, and, and, and people, Christ expects, will see things about these disciples and conclude things about the character of Jesus. In other words, if the Christian community, the church, churches like our own, if the church is marked by love, it should register with the world that Christ Himself must be loving. If the Christian community is compassionate, it should register with the world that Christ Himself is compassionate. If the Christian community is holy, it should register with the world that Christ Himself is holy. If the Christian community is hospitable or gentle or meek, so on and so forth. Moreover, if the Christian community is bitter and cold-hearted, it will register with the world that Christ, who we profess to imitate, must be bitter and cold-hearted. If the Christian community is marked by strife and division, it will register with the world that Christ is the source of strife and division. How often do we hear that? Richard Sibbs has said, our discord as Christians is our enemy's melody. Our discord is our enemy's melody. If Satan can get a foothold in the church and begin to erode our love for one another, his victory is only a matter of time. When we present the truth to the world that God is love, we should not meet with a response. Now, I find that very hard to believe. I would never draw the conclusion from observing the lives of the people at your church that God is preeminently a loving God. Rather, the response should be, well, of course your God is a loving God. I can see that plainly in the way that you live, the way that you love one another. You see, the way we live represents the character of Christ. And Christ's assumption is people will conclude things about the person of Jesus Christ by their observation of how Christians live. 
So in closing, I want to ask a probing question. I'm sure all of us would tremble at the thought of our lives being played out on these projector screens to my left and to my right. But I'll ask you to entertain the fantasy for a second, or maybe the nightmare. Suppose we did see your life played out on the projector screens in this room. Would those who came to watch the video discern from the recorded footage that this person clearly puts a significant priority on loving his or her fellow Christians. This person's life just seems to be so populated with good work, so populated with acts of service and love toward fellow believers. This person is clearly committed to loving his fellow Christians. And maybe you say you wouldn't see that much, but, but I have love in my heart. Listen, it's not enough to have love in our hearts. The assumption of this passage is that the love is demonstrable, that is demonstrable. People can see it and draw conclusions by their observation of how we live. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You might be hearing this sermon this morning and, and think, well, I'm not sure I've ever really loved like that. And, and what's, what's more, I don't know how you love like that. I don't feel within myself the resources to love other people like that. Well, if you're a Christian person, let me encourage you, sit at the feet of the master. Uh, sit at the feet of the teacher. And learn what love looks like. Learn from his example and his model what it means to love other people. And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I would encourage you to go further than that. You will not become a loving person unless you experience the love of Christ yourself. The resources with which we love others comes from a deeply rooted experience of being loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be a loving person, you need to have the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart. You need to experience something of what it's like to be lost in sin and dead in sin and to experience the condescension and love and mercy and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only from that vantage point that you can love your wife. It's only out of the overflow of that experience that you can, you can love unlovely people in your experience. It's only out of the overflow of that experience that we can give to the world a model of what it's like to love other people. We must be those who have experienced the gospel of grace in our hearts. And this is what Jesus does for all His followers. He makes them loving people. He teaches them through experience and through example what it is like to love others selflessly in a Christ-like and God-honoring way. If you're like me, I sat before this text this week and just prayed to God, make me more like this. Well, how are you going to do that? You have to go to Christ. You can't just try harder. Uh, you, you can't just set a reminder in your phone. Uh, you can't just read more books about what it means to be loving. You must go to Christ 
and find in him all the resources with which you will love other people in your family, other Christians in the church, and indeed love the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to come to you, the great master, the great teacher, the great exemplar of what it means to love, the great standard held out for us. And may you teach us through the experience of your love and your grace at work in our lives what it means to love others. We pray that you would make us as a community of your people to be loving, abounding still more and more in love. We thank you for your grace in our lives and in our church. We thank you for the things you've wrought in this place. But Lord, we, we haven't achieved yet. We, we stretch forward, lay hold of what is before us, seeking to become more and more like our Savior, holding out his love to a watching world. Help us in this. We pray, Father, that you would never have cause to threaten this church with removing the candlestick because we've drifted away from our love. Oh, Father, help us to steward and to abound in and to nurture love for one another. Make us faithful to the new commandment that Christ gave to that new church, that new ecclesia, that new called-out people. Help us to honor you by the way we love one another. Give us, Lord, in, in the difficult times, in the cracks and in the crevices, a robust commitment and determination to persevere in our love for each other. Uh, For the, not just the maintaining of, of this work in this church, but for the displaying of the gospel of grace to a watching world, to the glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.